your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. And John 14, starting at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your written word of Scripture may now and always be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, and it really is lovely to be here and to be able to have this opportunity of celebrating 20 years, which is, you know, find quite extraordinary. And the world has changed quite considerably over those 20 years. And we live today in a world of amazing access to media outlets, which has greatly increased our knowledge of events and ability to communicate. In so many situations, this has been a huge blessing. But it's also brought within an opportunity for the unscrupulous to mislead, to distort, to spread false information, and to seek to manipulate situations and events to their own ends. What has now become fashionably known as fake news. And it's not just in the political arena. In the Times last week, I read this. It is one of social media's dirty little secrets 
celebrities purchase fake Instagram and Twitter followers and then charge advertisers to promote product to an army of bots and ghost accounts. It then went on to say that brands needed to take act urgent action to rebuild trust as, and I love this quote, trust comes on foot but leaves on horseback. Influencers who buy followers undermine that relationship. And also in the last week or so I've read that the Commission on Fake News, yes, there is one, set up by MPs, has just published a study by the National Literacy Trust on the impact of fake news on children and young people. And this found that only one in 50 children can tell if a news story is true or fake. And it's clearly a concern for the future. And I wonder if that would also be true for adults. So how can we know what is true? And who or what can we trust? And as I'm sure you'll all appreciate, integrity is a major issue today in the public domain. Does what people say stack up with how they behave? And is that, over time, consistent? These words from Hamlet will resonate with many. This above all, to thine own self, be true. And it must follow as the day, the night, Thou canst not then be false to any man. But in a world of increasingly relative values, this is my truth, you tell me yours, on what can this be based? Is there a truth outside ourself which can be known and trusted, which goes beyond opinions, however firmly held, which doesn't ebb and flow with our moods and our experience of life. And if so, how can we know and what difference does it make? For me personally, and for us as a church, that we believe that the answer is to be found in God alone. Which is why, as we've already been said, over these summer months, we are considering together the different attributes of God. So far we have thought about his greatness in creation, his merciful nature, and if you hear last week, his strength. Today that he is true, that he is the truth in whom we can put our trust. For God has not been silent, he has revealed himself through his works in creation, its grandeur, its beauty, its infinite variety, through scripture and his relationship with his people, and supremely in the person of Jesus. And one of the important threads running throughout scripture is God's covenant relationship with his people as this is built up 
and cemented over the years. This began with individuals, as Pete's already shown us. First, the rainbow sign given to Noah after the flood. Then to Abraham, with the promise that his offspring would be like stars in the sky. And this promise was originally fulfilled in Egypt and extended to the whole people, as we've seen in our Exodus, reading from Exodus. For God reveals himself to his people and he establishes his covenant with them. The giving, as we've seen in Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments reflected the structure of contemporary royal treaties. And it begins with the great king revealing himself. I am the Lord your God. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, which we can read about in Exodus 3, Moses asked God for his name. And he receives the answer, I am who I am. This was the name by which God wished to be known and worshipped in Israel. The name that expressed his character as the dependable and faithful God who desires the full trust of his people. Having identified himself, he then gives this a context where he sketches out his previous gracious acts to his people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he sets out their part and the way that they are to live in relationship with him. And through the rest of the Old Testament, we see Israel's fluctuating fortunes as they struggle to keep their side of the bargain. But within that, there are glimpses of how God desired it to be, as trust is built up based on experience. And as so often, this is most beautifully expressed in the Psalms, through raw emotions and naked honesty, and being completely open before God. And if we take the example of Psalms 3 and 4 and put them together, we see David threatened on all sides by enemies who are out to dethrone him and kill him. Yet such is his trust in God. With all this going on, he speaks of his assurance of his waking in the morning because the Lord will keep him while he sleeps and in the inner quietness with which he goes to sleep because of the Lord's care. With all that turmoil flying around and the maelstrom of emotions that must have been going through him, could we do the same? Could we have that trust? And in all the busyness of our lives, can we be still and know that I 
am God. But we need to ask ourselves, was that something specific to that period of history and it was okay for them? Or does it have relevance for us today? If God is true, is it possible to know him today? Is there a truth that transcends time and space? And if so, what does it look like? And this was the question on the lips of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. When faced by a prisoner who made before him this extraordinary claim. I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And this brought on the famous response of Pilate. What is truth, he said. And did he, in that moment, really want to know? Did it strike a chord in him and challenge him to examine his life? For the answer to his question was standing right there in front of him. He let the moment pass, but how will we respond? For at the Last Supper, the evening before his meeting with Pilate, Jesus had answered this question, What is truth? I am. At this meal, Jesus tells the disciples he's about to leave them. And as we can see from our reading from John, he is very aware of their anxiety about the future. For their whole world for the past three years had been so completely wrapped up in Jesus that the prospect of his leaving must have been devastating. He'd asked them to invest their whole future in following him. And now this. What was to become of them? And in his love and great compassion, Jesus acknowledges and confronts their fears. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And by saying this, Jesus presents himself unambiguously as the object of their faith. Faith in God, quite simply, is faith in him. And this becomes even clearer when in answer to Thomas's question about their future destiny, he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. By saying this, Jesus makes himself one with God by using the God title, I am, the name by which God revealed himself to Moses. And through their three years together, Jesus had given the disciples compelling evidence of who he was. From the very beginning of his ministry, they will have heard John the Baptist 
describe him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They will have seen him when he demonstrated his authority over creation as he fed vast crowds from one young boy's lunchbox, had control of a violent storm and walked on the water. They will have seen the loving way he healed many, cast out evil spirits and even raised the dead. And they will have listened spellbound as he told profound stories with deep inner meanings which are still well known and relevant today. And alongside this, they will have heard the astonishing claims that he made about himself. That he was and is, I am. That he was God incarnate. And he was also preparing them for his departure and what would happen next. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And it is the same spirit of truth who reveals Jesus today as I am. On six other occasions in John's Gospel, Jesus makes claims about himself prefaced by the words, I am. I am the bread of life. All who come to me will never go hungry. And all who believe in me will never be thirsty. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. All who believe in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And I am the vine. You are the branches. If anyone remains in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And each of these sayings says something about our relationship with Jesus and his desire to love, nourish, protect, guide, heal and lead us in all its fullness. Taken together, they present a glorious picture of the life as God intends it to be. But is it true? Can it be trusted? How should we react to the claims Jesus made? In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis expressed it like this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And that was the choice I was confronted with nearly 50 years ago, precisely on the 9th of February, 1969, at around 8 o'clock in the evening, in All Souls Church in London. I come from a totally non-church background, and at its most generous, my attitude to Christian faith at the time was one of scepticism, deeming it to be basically irrelevant. Yet at that moment, I had the most profound experience of God and was faced by the most important decision of my life. It was very clear, very straightforward, yes or no. By God's grace, I said yes and embarked on a new life and began to experience the promise of Romans 15, where Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. And over the years, I have come to realise that trust is the key to the relationship, and it is a deliberate, intentional act. It doesn't just happen. Without trust in the good news of Jesus, without trust in the good news of God's saving work and his promises, without an active moment-by-moment -moment trust in the good news of an all-sovereign God, how can we claim to fully believe? Like David's experience, this trust builds up over time as we experience his gracious touch on our lives as he works his purposes out. It is why the people of Israel kept recounting their past so that they could trust God for the future. It is as if our lives are a long road on which we are travelling and we look back in the rear-view mirror and see where we've come from and realise how God has formed us and shaped us and been true to his promises. It is then that we realise, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. Through these past 50 years, I've known many rocky moments. I've made bad decisions. 
and I've made many mistakes. I've suffered a severe breakdown, which left me deeply depressed, guilt-ridden, and panic-stricken. I've placed too much emphasis on my status as a head teacher and be devastated when it was taken and away in an instant. Yet God never let me go. In spite of all that, he had a plan and a purpose. The God whom we thank fulfilling the promises of the past will go on fulfilling his promises if we true choose to trust in him. For he is the unchanging God who is the same yesterday, today and forever. And his promises never to leave us or forsake us are not dependent on our circumstances or on our feelings, whether we're up in the clouds or whether we're down in the deepest pit. That means he can be the rock on which we can, with confidence, entrust with our lives. That is a choice I made and I continue to make. And by his grace today, as you know, I'm able to celebrate 20 years ordained ministry. And one of the great privileges of that role is being able to celebrate the communion, where we recall how Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. To remember, to give thanks. Because remembering with thanks is what causes us to trust to fully, truly believe. So as we each consider our response to God's invitation to trust in his promises at all times and in all circumstances and prepare shortly to receive the bread and the wine, I would like to read these words from Colossians as we fix our eyes on 